You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? Hey, we are so glad that you're here. So let me start with this. How many of you have been on Splash Mountain? How many of you enjoyed riding Splash Mountain? All right, look, pray for these people. Pray for them. Uh, my, you know, uh, uh, so I'll tell you this. My mom has this picture in her house of when my wife and I were first married. Uh, we went to Disney World, and um, we rode Splash Mountain. And it was kind of the, you know, the picture they take of you going down. So two pieces of information you need to know about my wife and I. The first is that my wife loves roller coasters. That feeling of impending death, she just can't get enough of it. Maybe why she married me. Um, and uh, the second thing you need to know is that I hate roller coasters. I mean, I hit a speed bump too hard, you know, my stomach starts turning. And, uh, but I just, I don't know. My feeling is if, if, the, if the feeling of falling from great heights, like that is fun, you got to talk to somebody because that's messed up. So, well, anyway, back to the picture. Um, now, the thing, first thing you're going to know about, now someday i got to bring it, but the thing you've got to know about the picture is that we're in the front row because my wife said it would be more fun for us to be in the front row, and, and I didn't want to sit in the front row, and she's like, well, where do you want to sit? I'm like, I want to sit in the gift shop, but apparently that's not one of the options, so I'm trying to just be a good sport here. So we go on the ride, and the picture really tells the whole story. When uh, <laughs> The thing of it, of it going down, um, my wife looks like this. Uh, hands up, laughing, having the best time. And then I'm over here, and this is the picture of me. <laughs> Holding on to that bar like it's the only thing keeping me alive. And, and you know what's funny? Um, there's nothing rational about holding on to the bar because the bar is not helping. The bar is not doing anything. And, but, but we have this instinctual desire to want to control, and so we'll just fixate on something so when things feel out of control, we can try to control something. And we've all done that, uh, and we all do this at times where we feel like circumstances are a little out of hand, so we just try to grab onto the smallest thing so we feel like we have some semblance of control. And listen, there's always a gap, but whenever the things get really intense and there's the gap between what we can control and reality, when that gap gets big, we usually fill it with things like worry, anxiety. We start questioning, does God love us? Is God, God asleep at the wheel? Does God know what he's doing? And, and yet the challenge is, and this is why this is so powerful, that space, the, the space between what we can control and reality, that's where spiritual maturity is born. That we're able to recognize our own inability to control and yet at the same time acknowledge God's complete control over all situations. Now, this is an easy thing to talk about, um, but it's a hard lesson to learn, and you don't learn the lesson once. It's a continual lesson, and if you want to be a person who's spiritually mature, you've got to learn it and live it throughout the course of your life. But we have a choice as to what we're going to fill with the gap between reality and control, and the happiest people that you know, the people with the most joy, the wisest people that you know, uh, they, they don't fill the space with worry and anxiety. They fill the space with trust. 
What they've done and what hopefully we do is that we've experienced God's faithfulness in the past in our lives. And even though we haven't experienced this yet, we're able to rely on the past experience of trusting God and seeing him um, show up in our lives that we can now just take him at his word and believe that he's going to be there for us. And the result when we do that is everything that we've been looking for. It's peace, it's joy, it's perfect, the purpose, it's a confidence that God's never going to leave us or forsake us. And so we find ourselves uh, today in message number 43 in our series through the Gospel of Matthew. And Jesus has just been arrested. He's been sentenced to death by the Jewish leaders. And we're going to meet a character named Pontius Pilate. And uh, whether you uh, are someone who you've read the Gospels or uh, even if you, you're like, no, nah, I don't go to church. I just got dragged here because they promised me free lunch. By the way, good for you, person who promised free lunch. Um, but we're going to meet Pontius Pilate, and, uh, who is a powerful Roman governor who is in a little bit of hot water, and the Jewish council knows it. And what they're going to do is they're going to take the fact that uh, that Pilate is a bit crippled politically and leverage that for their own purposes because at the end of the day, what they want is Jesus dead. And what we're going to learn in our time together, and this is the thing that I just want to keep reiterating, is that none of this is taking God by surprise. In fact, he's predicted all of it. And, and if that's the case here, then don't think for a minute that God has forgotten you. Or don't think that God doesn't have, uh, that the details of your life have somehow slipped his mind. Instead, the moments that we're waiting on God um, are the moments where our trust is tested. But I'm telling you, life is better when we trust him because none of these details are slipping uh, his mind. Jesus would say it this way, if you remember all the way back in chapter 10 of Matthew, he says, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs on your head are all numbered. And some of us make that easier for God than others. Um, but do not fear. Okay. Are we all right out there? That was fantastic. And uh, let, all right, I'm going to just cue you when it's time to laugh. Don't worry. You can relax. I'll cue you when it's hilarity time. All right. Uh, but do not fear. Therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. One of the, ch listen, when we don't see God working, it's not because God's not working. It's because God is working behind the scenes. The problem that we have with that, it's not a problem with God, it's a problem with us. The problem that we have is that we live in a world where if you don't post it on social media, it didn't happen. It, but God is not like that. God's not out there flexing and bragging about everything he does. Instead, he has worked in the past to bring a change to your present. And right now he's working in, a, in, in the present to bring a change to your future. So we're going to start in Matthew 27, and we're going to start in verse 1. Here's what we read. He says, And when morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. And if you pause there and give me your attention, first thing I want to tell you, what do I do when there's a gap between control and reality? The first thing is this, is realize this, is that God was working before you started praying. First thing. Now, if you've been tracking with us through this series, then I've been giving you kind of the chronology of, of what's happening. Right now, it's between 5 and 6 a.m. on the day of the Passover. According to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, they have just sentenced Jesus to death. And there's so much in these two little verses, and, and I want to make sure we don't miss it, because one of the questions that we need to be asking is, if the Jews want Jesus put to death, why don't they do it? 
Why are they taking Jesus to Pilate? That's another question. Who is this Pontius Pilate guy anyway, and what role does he play? Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea from about 26 to 36 AD. Um, He was on the job for about four to five years before Jesus stands before him. The weird part is, is that Pilate was not Roman. Uh, Pilate was Spanish. He was from Seville, Spain. And when the Roman legions came to his town, he joined up with the Roman army and started working his way through the ranks. And you're like, well, how did this guy go from, how did the Spanish guy go from just joining the army uh, to now becoming the governor of Judea? Well, he married very well. He married a woman named Claudia Procura, who was the granddaughter of Tiberius Caesar. And so sometimes it really is about who you know. And so that's what happened here. So Pilate, uh, he becomes the governor of Judea. He gets off on the wrong foot. The day that he takes office, he has this whole parade of people coming, soldiers coming through, waving their Roman banners. And at the top of the banners, there are these eagles made of gold and silver. And they walk into the temple area, the temple court, uh, the outer court. And when the Jews saw the eagles, uh, they went crazy. And uh, they were infuriated that they had brought an idol onto the temple courts, and they started a riot. Pilate uh, decides the best way to squash the riot is to gather up all the rioters and bring them to an amphitheater uh, just outside of Jerusalem, and he threatens to execute all of them unless they relent. The rioters lay their heads on the ground and say, kill us, and tomorrow there'll be 10,000 more to take our place. So it's like, checkmate. And he's like, okay, well, we're all good. You know, and then everybody kind of goes home. About two years later, Pilate wants to make up for the bad start that he had with the Jews. So he decides that he's going to build an aqueduct system from northern Israel all the way down to Jerusalem. It's an incredible feat of engineering that he did. But the problem is, uh, the way that he financed it is he went into the temple, raided the treasury, and that's how he, uh, that's how he financed it. As you can imagine... Jewish leaders went crazy, started a riot, and Pilate had to shed some blood to put down the insurrection. Lastly, and this happens just a few months before the verses that we read in Matthew 27, Pilate orders new armor for his soldiers, and as a way to kind of kiss up to the emperor, the new shields had Caesar's face on them. And the Jews saw this as idolatry, and they rioted again. And then the emperor Tiberius heard about it. He's very upset and he sends word to Pilate, one more problem, one more riot, one more uprising, and you are out of a job. So even though Pilate is a very powerful person in the Roman hierarchy, he's in a weakened political state. Now, the other question that you should be asking, which is what we mentioned before, is if they want to kill Jesus, why didn't, if the the Jewish leaders want to kill Jesus, why don't they just stone him? Now, that's an important question. The problem is, The Jews, when the Romans took over in 12 AD, the Jews had lost their ability to execute capital punishment uh, when the Roman occupation began. And so, and that's not just a random fact that happens. This is something that was actually prophesied in the book of Genesis, if you can believe that. Um, In Genesis 49, before Jacob dies, he has his 12 kids before him. And he starts praying a blessing over all 12 of his kids. He gets to his fourth son, whose name is Judah. And he prays this beautiful blessing uh, that's so powerful, but he basically says that the kingly line is going to come through Judah. I'm going to read it to you. It says this uh, in Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of 
the people. Now, Jewish scholars universally agree that Shiloh is an ancient name for the Messiah and the scepter not departing from between the feet of the person who's holding it means the right to execute capital punishment. Now, and the method of executing capital punishment in the Jewish culture was stoning. When they lost this ability in 12 AD due to, as I mentioned, the Roman occupation, Jewish priests and scholars tore their clothes and ran through the streets of Jerusalem. And here's what they yelled. They said, the scepter has departed from Israel and Shiloh has not come. They're saying the word of God has failed us. What they didn't know is that in 12 AD, there was this 12-year-old boy who was in the temple confounding the scholars with the questions that he was asking. And when his parents found him, Jesus said these words, why do you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? The other thing that's important for us to mention is in John chapter 8, if you remember the story, there's a woman who's caught in the act of adultery and the Jewish leaders are about to stone her. Jesus writes on the ground and he says, he who's without sin, let him cast the first stone. And then they all leave their stones and leave. So they, they have no problem stoning her. And if we go a little bit further in Acts chapter 7, there's this powerful preacher in the early church whose name is Stephen. Stephen gives this incredible message about Israel's history and the Messiah. The Jewish leaders don't like it and they stone him to death. So apparently they will stone people sometimes. But so why didn't they stone Jesus? Probably because Jesus was too well known and Stoning him would have gotten back to Rome and there would have been some repercussions. The other thing is there's a prophetic issue at hand. The prophets, when they described the death of the Messiah, they described the Roman form of execution, uh, crucifixion, a thousand years before it happened. David, King David, in Psalm 22, he starts writing and he describes crucifixion a thousand years before it happens. He says this in Psalm 22, verse 16. For dogs have surrounded me, the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me, and they pierce my hands and my feet. Now, in, in two weeks, we're going to do a deep dive into Psalm 22, because Jesus, when he's on the cross, quotes Psalm 22 as everyone realizes that it is a messianic psalm. When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is a quote, that's the first verse of Psalm, uh, psalm 22. But understand, the Persians in the 7th century BC, they invented crucifixion. They never used it because they thought it was too gruesome. And then the Romans perfected it. This is why in John chapter 18, Pilate says, uh, you take and judge him according to your law. Therefore, the Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Say, that, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Now, here's the point. This is where it intersects with your life and in mine. Every detail of this was prophesied some parts a thousand years before it happened. And that means that, listen, God was working on it before you started praying for it. Uh, when we started building this building, this is about a little over eight years ago, one of the things that we found out, now we, this was, we were neophytes at building. We were building our first building. And one of the things that we found out is that as we were building, that the county had assessed all new construction. Now, kind of the way it works, just so you know, just so you can understand the inefficiency of local government. Um, whenever a city or a county, where they want to build something, they will assess new construction. So they'll say, we want to build a water tower or some other nonsense. And they'll be like... Um, Everyone who builds new construction, there'll be this, basically it's a tax, but it's like a fee that's assessed on anyone who's building during the period of time of when they decide to build whatever nonsensical thing they're building until the nonsensical thing gets built. So we're all following here? The point is, 
local government nonsense. That's really the, the, the okay. So we found out that um, it was over $100,000 was our assessment. And the way that they do it is because they assess it based on how many bathrooms you're building. And I'm like, I will rip every toilet out of this building and uh, people can go to the bathroom at home. Anyway, but that apparently didn't fly. So, and it was over a hundred grand and I don't know about you, but we didn't have this, um, you know, we have no idea what to do with this money fund uh, that had more than a hundred grand in it. So we started praying and we're praying that someone would drop a hundred grand into the offering so that we could pay for this thing. Unfortunately, none of you people did that. And so, <laughs> and so that Monday, after I get this, I send someone from our staff to the city or to the county office. And I'm like, look, I want you to give me some documentation about this. I want to know how much I want, I want to the penny, how much we owe. And I want to know when it's due. And I want to know how we can get out of it. And to which the most operative being the last one. And so anyway, so we know what we're dealing with. So I send somebody down, there's someone from our staff, and they call me. Uh, I pick up, and they're like, Pastor Bob, we have a problem. I'm like, okay, what's the problem? They're like, I talked to the guy at the county. He says the assessment is paid for. I don't know what to do. And I'm like, okay. And he's, he's all agitated. I'm like, okay, three things you need to do. Number one, I need you to calm down, all right? Number two, I want you to find this gentleman that you spoke to, and I want you to have him print you a receipt. Not, not to say, I want a receipt that says there was a fee, that it's paid, and what we owe is zero. Okay? That's very important. You have to get that before you leave. He's like, okay, what's the third thing? The third thing is that once you have that, I want you to run out of there as fast as possible and never look back. All right? And so, now, that assessment got paid three years before we bought this property. And check this out. Listen, it, it, it's, it's really amazing. It was, it was paid for. I don't even know who paid it because they're not, they don't give out the, the information. And so it could be a different developer that owned the property. It could have been the people that owned the property before us. They started, they never finished. But, but listen, the point is, is that God was already working on it before we started praying for it. Thank you. Now, that's big. Let me give you something smaller. When my wife and I first got married, we were college students, and, um, which is code for we were broke, all right? So it's never like, I was a college student. I was rolling in cash, right? College, you know, so uh, we, were, we were broke. I, I was finishing my theology degree, and we're working full-time. We're trying to get out of debt and all that. And so, I'll, and people always ask my wife, like, is it Pastor Rob saying? Was that really true? Um, when our monthly grocery budget, when we got married in 1997, which was 26 years ago, uh, what our monthly grocery budget was $35 a month. I mean, it's like a little more than a dollar a day. All right. Um, so this, so that not a week, not a month. This is a month. There used to be this, you pick farm across the street from our house. And, uh, when I was either at school or working, my wife would walk across the street and she would buy the day old vegetables that kind of started like turning brown. She would cut the parts that were a little bit, uh, you know, kind of getting nasty. And then she would start cooking with that. I'm telling you, I had more vegetables in that. You would have thought I lost more weight. But I had so many vegetables that first year that, that we were married. And, um, and, and so, anyway, and so we, um, 
but 35 bucks a month. I mean, and we had no money. And so anyway, and, and you, I think every, and, and, and so even though we're, I mean, we were faithfully giving at the time, we're trying to do everything we can to be fiscally responsible and get out of debt. And we're like, we're never using these credit cards again because uh, we're going to get out of debt completely, which we did in the first two years of our marriage um, and have never gone back. But here's the thing. But then, but sometimes, and you know that this happens, that, you know, you're starting out for sure that there's a little bit month, a little bit of month left at the end of the money. You know that that happens sometimes. And um, I know a few of you are just starting to get that joke. I'm like, oh, I see that. Yeah, you feel free to use that with your friends. And um, but so we were, there was a little bit of month left and there was no more money. And, um, and there was this kind of gap and we're like, I don't know what we're doing for dinner. And um, now, and so, and then it was a day off. I'm like, what are we going to do? And like, it's not like, you know, we don't have any money to go do anything. Uh, and so we, um, which by the way, this is why I tell young married couples, like you shouldn't even own a TV the first year. We didn't own a TV the first year that we were married. And because if you're a newlywed couple, you've got to figure out a better thing to do than watch television. And, uh, and if you can't think of anything, like you just are not creative enough. And, uh, but that's a totally different sermon that we'll talk about. And uh, so anyway, so, uh, so her, Carrie and I say, well, let's walk to the mailbox. We haven't done that. That'll, you know, kill a few minutes. So we walked to the mailbox and, uh, you know, it was in a little apartment. So it's one of those things where everybody's mailbox is in the same place. So we open the thing and there's, a, there's a, you know, some nonsense. And then there's a letter that we got from this girl who used to be in our small group that had gone to be a missionary in Guatemala. And um, the letter from her, it was just, it was so kind. And she basically had left and we had prayed for her before she left. And, uh, and she said, you know, you guys were so kind to open your home every week for us. And you were so generous to buy snacks for everybody. And so I think I just wanted to buy some food for you. And in the letter that she, in the card that she sent was a Publix gift card for 25 bucks outside of the birth of my three children. I've never been happier in my life than I was at that moment. And I remember telling my wife, honey, let's go get some steaks. Jesus is buying. And, uh, and so, and it, it was an amazing, but you know, the thing is, listen, the gift card was already in the mailbox. God was already working before we started praying. And listen, we, whenever we find ourselves in the gap between control and reality, we will lose our joy and wonder if God cares for us. And then that's when bad decisions start happening, when all along God has been working and we just haven't seen it yet. What we're going to see with a familiar friend, and I wish he had known this, look at what happens in verse 3. It says, Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. And then he threw down the pieces of silver uh, in, in the temple and departed and went and hung himself. But the chief priest took the silver and said, it's not lawful uh, to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, the field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave it for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. If you pause there and give me your attention, what do we do, right? When there's a gap between control and reality. The second thing that we do, number one, I got to realize that God's been working even before I was praying. The second thing is, is that obeying, understanding this truth, that obeying God minimizes my regrets. When Judas sees that Jesus was condemned to death, he realized that his plan did not work. 
He returns the money. The chief priests don't care about his remorse. They're done with him. He's already served his purpose. Now, if you weren't with us when we talked about Judas's betrayal, let me give you the really condensed version, and maybe you were here and you forgot, and it's okay. But there's really only two reasons why Judas would betray Jesus. Now, I know what happens is, especially if you watch these, uh, some of the movies, is that they portray Jesus as, or Judas as like this evil guy the whole time. Once again, it's just not what we see in the Gospels. When in, during the Last Supper, the Passover, when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, they don't all say, yeah, it's probably Judas. He wears all black, black fingernail polish, and just listens to Depeche Mode in the dark all the time, right? No, that's not what they said. You know what they say? They're like, is it me? Every single one of them say, is it me? Because it just could easily be me as it could be anybody else. But it turns out to be Judas, and and the question is why? So it's not just because he was just this evil guy to begin with and everybody saw it. The disciples saw him just like they saw themselves and everybody else in the group. But there's really only two ways, uh, two reasons why Judas would betray Jesus. First, that Judas was somehow disappointed that Jesus was not the kind of Messiah that he expected, that he wasn't planning to overthrow Rome, he wasn't going to overthrow the religious elite in Israel, and that consequently there was no position of prestige or power for him to take. The second reason, and once again, this is the one that I I personally lean towards, is that the betrayal could have been Judas's way to force Jesus' hand to establish his kingdom and then force a confrontation with Rome. And I I personally lean in that direction because when it doesn't work, Judas is so guilt-ridden that he wants to give the money back, and when they don't change their mind, he goes and kills himself. And by the way, I think it's important to know, because you know how people are. If there was something duplicitous or something hypocritical about Jesus, Judas would have used that to justify his actions. Yeah, you know, I shouldn't have done that, but you know, I saw Jesus kick a puppy one time, and so he probably deserved it. No, but there was nothing hypocritical. There was nothing duplicitous about Jesus, and so all that was left was guilt over what he had done. And my friends, this is the problem with sin. Sin, the advertisement is always better than the real thing. And that's why we live with regrets because sin never delivers on the thing that it promises. And we've all experienced that. Have you ever gone through a uh, fast food drive through and you see the picture of what you're gonna order? Has that thing ever shown up in your bag? No, right? Let me, let me give you an example, all right? This is, let me show you this, all right? This is... This is a good-looking situation. This is a Burger King double cheeseburger, all right? This is a good-looking situation. This is what they advertise. Let me show you what it looks like when you get it. I mean, this thing looks like it just got back from Afghanistan, all right? That is a situation, all right? Just to, since we're on the topic of Burger King, here's another one. This is the double Whopper. This is a perfect, everything about this is perfect. Burgers, the amount of lettuce, tomato, onion, pickle. There's even, you see that? A little touch of ketchup. There's mayonnaise on the top. This is the perfect one. If I walked into someone's house and they had this framed on their wall, I'd be like, a person of wisdom lives here. All right? Let me show you what it looks like when you get it in the bag. Like, this, what? This is like that other burger if it started smoking meth. Like, what is that? What is that? That, this thing. All right, this is a problem. All right, I'm gonna leave. I'm gonna leave Burger King alone. Let's talk some trash about Wendy's. Um, all right, let's do this one. This is the Baconator. First of all, one of the best inventions that Wendy's has ever come up with. The, everything about this is perfect. Look at this bun. You could. Th- this is 
This is a perfect bun. The cheese, two pieces of cheese, perfect. Look at the crispiness of this. There is, let me tell you what's perfect about this. When you get this, there is air flowing to and fro through here, bringing the scent to your nostrils so you know what you're about to eat. Everything about this is perfect. Let me show you what it looks like when you get it. If you're, this, if you're a fan of Greek mythology, this is what Medusa looked like. This is just sad. All right, all right, last one. Let me show you the, the, let me show you this one. This is the Subway Sweet Teriyaki. Once again, look at the angle. Look at the, look at the appropriate amount of sauce in this, right? I mean, this is everything. Look at, the, look at the lift that the tomatoes have. They're not resting on the bread. They are lifted through crisp lettuce. And all of that is going to pass on to you with every passing bite. Okay, let's see what this looks like. This is what it looks like when you had the sweet teriyaki and it didn't agree with you. This is aftermath. And so, anyway, we can, we can move that. And you're like, hey, you didn't say anything about McDonald's. That, that's because I respect McDonald's and I love McDonald's. Don't talk trash about them. So, thank you. McDonald's loves you. Nobody else is giving you a meal that is guaranteed happy. All right? It's a happiness meal. And you've received it from them so many times. And we don't even thank them. We don't deserve McDonald's. I'm going to tell you that right now. They are a national treasure. Anyway, I'll tell you, I'll t- <laughs> I'll tell you something funny. Uh, years ago, I, I, I did something like this, and I showed the picture of the sweet teriyaki sub. And after the, <laughs> sorry, I'm making myself laugh. After the, after the service, a, um, a woman from church comes up to me and says, hi. And I'm like, oh, hey, it's good to see you. She's like, hey, I want to introduce you to my friend. I brought her to church for the first time. I'm like, oh, hey, it's great to meet you. She says, hi, I'm the vice president of Subway. <laughs> and uh, I started laughing so hard. And I'm like, hey, I guess we're never going to see each other again. <laughs> and, uh, and we didn't. It's really sad. So. Anyway, but you know, it's not my fault. That's your sub, not mine. And I'm just pointing out the obvious. But now, listen, here, here's, here's, the point, here's the point that I'm making. We want to live our lives with as few regrets as possible. This is what makes the backdrop of the potter's field so powerful. The way it works is, is that, and once again, there were many potters in Israel. When a potter began to work with clay, it was natural that a, a certain percentage of them were going to, when they began to dry, were going to have cracks, they would have chips, uh, something in them would have some kind of imperfection once they dried, so they would break the vessel and uh, they would take the, the marred uh, chips and they would just throw them in this field. Everybody would throw them in these fields throughout Israel. The problem is, over the course of years, these fields became good for nothing. You couldn't grow anything on them, you couldn't plant anything on them, um, or build anything on them because the... the the ground was just wasted because of all this pottery that was, that was on there. And so what would happen is, is that like what happens here, people would buy the fields uh, to basically just become cemeteries for strangers who had no other place to be buried. And so this prophecy that, uh, that Matthew uh, references from Zechariah and Jeremiah are predicting what is going to be used with the money that they're going to use to buy this field. But it's this, there is a beautiful picture and there's, And the point that God is making, especially in the Jeremiah passage, is that he says to Jeremiah, go to the potter's house. And when he goes to the potter's house, he sees the potter working with clay. And he says, see, I am the potter and the clay are the people of Israel. And so, and the whole point is, is that there is beauty in broken things. 
Because the potter can turn what's broken into something wonderful. A mosaic, and so many of us, if you come with us to Israel, we're going to see a, a ton of mosaics. A mosaic is something of beauty that's made from broken pieces. And all of us are broken. All of us have regrets. But that doesn't mean your life is wasted. It means that you need to go to the potter and let him transform you. Judas did not see any hope and ended his life. And it's so tragic because it could have been so much more. Because for all the time he spent with Jesus, he still didn't get it. And then we get the interaction that he has with uh, with Pilate that Jesus has in verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him saying, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, it is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he said nothing. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not one word so that the governor marveled greatly. Last thing I want to tell you, what do you do when you find yourself in the gap between control and reality. You got to understand this. Understand that truth is my friend. The question that we need to ask is, why is Pilate leading off with this question? Why is this, are you a king? Why is it the first question to bring the charge against Jesus? It's because in uh, Luke chapter 23, we get the full conversation. They, the, the religious leaders bring Jesus to Pilate and announce what the charges are against him. And you'll see it on the screen uh, or in your notes. It says, then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate and they began to accuse him. And they said, we found this fellow perverting the nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So these are the three charges that he is uh, perverting or misleading the nation that he's saying people shouldn't pay taxes, which, by the way, both of those are false. He's not misleading the nation. And when asked if he should pay taxes, he said you should give to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar and give to God that which belongs to God. So those are false. But this third one, that he is Christ the king, that one is true. That's why Pilate is asking the question. And Pilate is astonished that Jesus doesn't say anything about the charges against him. Why? Because you know what every other person who has ever stood in front of Pilate accused has done? declare their innocence. Talk about how they didn't do it, how it wasn't what it looks like. You got to understand, I was a victim of circumstance. I didn't mean to be there. There's nothing I could have done. You would have done what I would have done if you were in the same situation. So there's no way that this could be my fault. And everybody's saying that they're innocent and Jesus says nothing. But he does have a conversation with Pilate. And this is kind of just the truncated version of it. But in John chapter 18, we get the expanded full version of the conversation. And here's what it says. You'll see it on the screen. It says, then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I would not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Therefore, Pilate said to him, are you a king then? And Jesus answered, you rightly say that I'm a king. For this cause I was born, for this cause I have come into the world, that I may bear witness of the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? Pilate's words are so telling because this is a guy who had spent his entire career bending the truth, stretching the truth, and spinning the truth. And now he's not even sure what truth is. And here's what we do at times, is that we don't just, we start kind of 
working our way down. It doesn't happen all at once. We just kind of, you know, something happens, like, yeah, I was wrong, but, you know, it wasn't really that bad. I mean, it's not like I killed anybody. And, and I, I've never understood that line of reasoning. Like, that's the line between being a bad person. Like, you know, I mean, I've maimed a few people, but never killed them. So I'm still on the north side of, of, of being okay. Um, but the reality is, is that it never, start, it never starts out. No one ever starts out with one full leap. I mean, let me, let me ask it this way. How many of you have ever gained weight? If you're comfortable answering that. You've ever gained, un, and I mean unintentional, like, yeah, I'm load, loading up to get ripped. I mean, like, you gained it in all the wrong places. All right. A few of us, the rest of you are liars. And um, <laughs> now, you, and here's how it worked. You were on a diet or some kind of eating plan, and then something happened, a progression that got you back to the old ways. Because no one goes straight from waking up in the morning and saying, you know, I was going to eat a banana, but I decided to eat a Twinkie instead. I mean, they're both yellow. It must be the same, right? Nobody's doing that. Instead, it's a slow progression. You stop exercising for some reason. Then you go out for dinner and you have a bad meal. And you're like, you know, it's, a, it's one bad meal. It's not, a, it's not the end of the world because you know what's going to happen after a bad meal. I'm going to hit it so hard tomorrow. I'm going to erase the bad meal by the end of the day. And that's just how that's going to be. Then the next day you go to a birthday party and the person made a cake. And they're like, you got to try my cake. Oh my goodness, the best cake I've ever made. You got to try my cake. You like cake, right? Of course I like cake. I'm human. And so like, you got to try the cake. And so you're like, all right, I'll have a small, but it a small piece of cake. And they're like, oh, you should have a regular piece. And then every Cuban in the crowd that, that, that's there is like, come on, un dia, que pasa un dia. And they want, they're like, because Cubans have this philosophy that it's like one day. That's what un dia means, one day. The problem is some of us have been stringing out one day for like 18 months. And, uh, you know, and so, and so, and then, so you, you're doing your one day thing and then you're driving, the next day you're driving home from work and you're like, you know, um, I should pick up a cake from Publix because, you know, my, my child, they learn how to tie their shoes and, and that's, that's good. And, you know, especially since they're 12. And um, so now we're going to now, so you buy the cake because you're going to celebrate the shoe tying thing. And then when everybody's asleep one night, you eat half the cake and it's game over. All right. That's how the progression, by the way, that wasn't me. Uh, that was a friend of mine pray for him. That guy's a real loser. And uh, now, but many times, you know what happens? We get to this progression, then we think that somehow, well, you know what happens? That God's judging me. That's what, like, no. When all, all that's happening there is that we're experiencing the natural weight of our, of our own decisions. You know, if you decide to rob a bank and you will get caught because bank robbers get caught, um, you, when you get arrested, and you're, they're putting you in the back of the squad car. It, before you get in, I'm just like, God, I'm so sorry. Forgive me for this bank robbing. You know that God is going to forgive you on the spot? Isn't that amazing? God is going to forgive you, and yet you're still going to jail. Because while God has forgiven you, the criminal justice system has not. And that's just... Why? Because going to jail is the natural consequence of our actions. And it works in every area of life. That we, meant to, we reap what we sow. If we decide not to do relationships God's way, it's going to be a disaster. And we don't decide to manage our money God's way, it's going to be rough. And if we decide to not work with a godly work ethic, it's not God's fault when we get fired. And we can't say that it's God's judgment. It's simply the natural consequences of what happens when we start to see God's commands as suggestions. And this is so important because when things are out of control and the end of my control and the gap between that and reality, whenever that feels like too much, that's the moment where we start to take matters in our own hands. And that's usually about the moment when things go from bad to worse. Because listen, the plans that God has for you are greater than anything you and I could ever cook up for ourselves. 
But the challenge is when we find ourselves in God's waiting room, it doesn't feel like that. But yet it doesn't make that statement any less true, that his plans are better. But there is something about being in the waiting room, and we do the thing that Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount, and that is we keep asking, seeking, and knocking. And that the process of that will begin to draw you to a place of asking the right thing. When I was in college, uh, when I was much younger, getting my theology degree, um, I, I was a delivery guy at night, so I'd go to school all day. And um, there were a few times, and I've always had a pretty good sense of direction, but there was a few times where I'd have some food to deliver and I'd knock on the door and nothing would happen. I'd knock on the door again, no one would answer. And then I'd start looking in the window before I realized that that was a weird thing to do. But I'm just trying to get this, move this stuff out of my car. And so, uh, nothing. And then, I, and I'm like, man, why is this? You keep knocking, keep knocking, nothing happens. And then I would look at the receipt again and realize like, dude, I'm at 187th court. I need to be at 187th place. I would hop back in my car. I would go one block over and first knock, the door opens. And see, sometimes we feel like there's a delay between our asking and God answering uh, because God isn't on the scene. No, God is on the scene. Sometimes we're knocking on the wrong doors. And God is too good to give us anything less than what we truly need. But listen, what we learn is this, is that God does a work in us while we're knocking on the wrong door. And it inspires us to move to start knocking on the right door. Because what the psalmist said in Psalm 119 is right, that God is good and he does good. So if you're in the waiting room, listen, don't give up. Don't give up if you're in the waiting room. Even if you're knocking on the wrong door, go through the process and let God show you you're knocking on the wrong door. It's time to move one block over and you're gonna see what God uh, begins to do because God is working even when you don't see it. Sometimes God is answering even before we start praying. And listen, because truth is our friend that he has promised that he will not fail us. He hasn't failed us yet and he's not about to. Let's pray together. And Lord, we wanna thank you for that amazing promise that you're never going to leave us. You're never going to forsake us. You're going to fulfill your promise. And Lord, we thank you for that. So God, do your work in and through us. Lord, I pray for some of us here who we've been waiting for a while. We've been praying for some time for you to do that, that thing that we've sought. God, may this be the moment that we start knocking on the right door, praying the right prayer, and that we would recognize that you've been working all along. You've just been waiting for us to start knocking on the right door. And we pray it in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.